how can I get from where I am to where I want to be? What do I need to do and how do I get there? And start making it happen. One thing about a plan, it's a plan that's not written down as a dream. Once you get through dreaming, start planning. Welcome to Better Together with Kosti Epifonsev a podcast on parenting, business, and living life intentionally. We're here every week to bring you thoughtful conversation on making your own path to success, challenging the status quo, and finding all the ways we're better together. Here's your host, Costa Yepafonsev. Hey, y'all, this is Costa, and today I'm here with my guest, Henry Fincher, certified civil trial specialist, family law specialist, and elder law attorney. In addition to attending Harvard Law School, Henry has served as Tennessee state representative, city judge, and has more certified specialties than any other attorney in the state of Tennessee. Henry, your list of accomplishments and contributions to our country and community could fill an entire podcast. But can you give us more background on you personally, growing up and what kind of aspirations you had as a child. Hey, Costa, you're too kind. Yeah, I'll be glad to. I grew up here in Cookville. I grew up about half a mile from the square. Uh, It was a much smaller town. Growing up, my parents were both teachers. Uh, We were of respectable but modest means. Sure. And, you know, growing up as a child, I guess it kind of depends on what age. The first career that I thought would be really awesome was a garbage man (laughs) because the garbage man would back down in the in the middle of the property and they were hanging off the back of the truck. And I thought, how cool. You, you run fun. around, you hang on the back of a truck, you never have to bathe. You know, I mean, <laughs> what, what could be better right. as a four-year-old? Absolutely. Uh, you know, as, as I got older, my, my aspirations changed a little bit. But the thing I remember about childhood was it was a real mix of reading a lot and just being outdoors a lot. We had a farm south of the interstate here. And so I was down there helping dad uh, or my grandma. Mm-hmm. She had horses, he had cattle. So we were either working horses or cattle from a young age and everything that went with that, roaming the land and chasing snakes down with a hoe. I mean, you, <laughs> you name it. I learned the meaning of manual labor, uh, chopping tobacco and hauling hay for 25 cents a bale and things like that. And uh, that inspired a desire for higher education. Very nice. So, <laughs> yes, I like that. There's nothing like working a hard manual job to make you want to go to school. It's uh, <laughs> It was a pretty direct approach. Did you want to be a lawyer when you were a kid? Uh, among other things, uh, that, was, uh, that was always something that appealed to me, the idea of getting paid to argue the idea of putting the reading and the writing and the the arguing to good work, the idea of standing up for someone who couldn't speak for themselves, who couldn't advocate for themselves, who for whatever reason they can't make their case, and it's your job to do it for them. And that appealed to me as a young man, and it appeals to me today when I get up to go to work in the morning. What does success mean to you? And more importantly, did you expect to accomplish so much so quickly, or has it been kind of a slow progression of hard work and building on itself over time? Well, it's kind of you to to say that I've achieved a lot. I, you know, like most folks, I've done what I can. I've had positives and I've had setbacks over my life. But you asked about the definition of success. I don't think there's a better and more achievable definition of success than Emerson's. Emerson said that if one life is breathed easier because you were here, you're a success. And that's a call to me every day. That's the great thing about my job is I help people breathe easier every single day. And so I'm meeting that definition of success. 
I think the motivation of that to help others, to find meaning in your life, to make the community just better in some way through what you do as a career is really, really important. How did you, after graduating and becoming an attorney, what was some of the things that you did that perfected your craft? Well, as a young attorney, and I wanted to be a trial lawyer, I, I knew that after I looked around at a couple of summer internships, I knew I wanted to be in the courtroom. And so that is a true craft. There's a lot of skill that goes into something as simple as getting a piece of paper into evidence. It doesn't just, you don't just hand it up and it goes in. There's rules, there's things that have to be done, there's foundations that have to be laid. It's a lot more complicated than one would think. Probably more complicated than it has to be. But be that as it may, it's the rules. So you had to learn those. I was fortunate in law school, we had a really good trial advocacy program at Harvard and the National Institute of Trial Advocacy, which is the leading trial advocacy training for lawyers who are already admitted to the bar. They would hold their national conference at Harvard where they would train instructors. So a few of us got picked to be the representative students. And so we would get critiqued and dragged through the mud and taught the hard way how to do our craft by several excellent attorneys from all over the country. It was just a crazy, wonderful opportunity. Absolutely, yeah. And then when I got down here... I started off in Nashville. I had wonderful opportunities. First, I clerked for a a federal judge who had been a great trial lawyer of his own right before he got in there. I went and had a job where I was the associate for definitely one of the top five uh, litigation attorneys in Nashville. Started with him. He taught me a lot as well. And then in 97, I came to a crossroads. I was practicing downtown. It was kind of dry. It was a lot of corporations suing other corporations. It wasn't very human. There weren't really people to help. I didn't feel like I didn't see it. And my grandmother had passed away and she'd left me her house. But I had to come live in it. That was the that was the deal. And so she wanted you back home. Well, yeah, she did, and she got her wish. I came home, and I'm glad I did. But that was totally opposite. I had one of the top associate jobs at the best firm in Nashville, and then I'm back here. I just hung out my shingle, and I'm taking appointments and hustling uh, DUIs and just doing whatever I can to uh, make ends meet. And that was a way to learn too. It was not a gentle way to learn. It it was. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, kind of like they talk about learning how to swim by being thrown in the water. Sure. So, but I, I had the benefit of a lot of good mentors and friends in the bar who we, some of us learned together uh, by beating up against each other. You know, we're still, most of us are still at it. So you went to Harvard, you are working in Nashville, you're at the top firm, then you go a full 180 and you come back to Cookville and you kind of start over from scratch and Correct me if I'm wrong, but you've originally wanted to be an attorney to help people, and you found that calling here in Cookville. Exactly. Nashville had grown to the size at the time, and this is in the 90s. It's done nothing but explode ever since. It had grown to a size that was much more impersonal, much more big city. And, you know, had I wanted to do that, I certainly had opportunities with my other classmates. I have classmates all over the world. Most of them landed in big cities doing either big city law or private equity. 
something like that. The consulting, McKinsey and those things were really hot back in the 90s, and they were the prime jobs that people were looking for. But I I knew I wanted to come back to Tennessee. I, I liked it. I thought Nashville would be the perfect mix of a small city, but have the benefits of a city, but the charm of a small town, and it was kind of reversed. Yeah. So it was, uh, being an associate's a, a hard life under any circumstances, but I that was the other thing is I really wanted to be my own boss. I don't take direction too well, and, and I Join still don't. <laughs> and so I had the opportunity where I could hang out my shingle. I had figured everything out. I knew what it would take to make it happen. I'd saved up enough from the fancy job, and I left. And as you get to this stage of life, one looks back and thinks, well, did I make the right decision? And, and, you know, who knows, you know, the road not taken. But I had some great reassurance from a friend of mine who was contemporary. We started at the same time. We stayed friends over the years. We hadn't seen each other in probably 15 years. When we were in court down there, we had something going on in Nashville mm-hmm. together. And he, he pulls me to the side. He's like, you've got it made. I said, what are you talking about? He's like, I see, you know, I see you. It's you own your own practice. You get to travel some. You've got this quality of life. He says, you've got it made. I said, I don't know, man. I said, if I'd stayed down here, I mean, you're, he's now a name partner in what was his his father's firm, blue, I mean, a very high-level firm down in Nashville. And yeah. he's, I can guarantee he's making a lot more than I am. And he's just shook his head, and he had this haunted look in his eyes, and he says, don't ever think that. And he says, you made the right call, man. There you go. Now, I don't know what's behind that. There's another story. So, yeah. Was making that transition the hardest challenge of your professional career? Oh, not even close. It what, was, what was it? It was a challenge. Well, you know, to come home and make the adjustment. But people were very helpful. Judge Hudson and Judge Goolsby uh, and Judge Turnbull and Judge Maddox and Vernon Neal were very helpful. They got me appointments, which the state would pay. I mean, they paid next to nothing. But when you don't have paying clients, then uh, next to nothing's better than nothing. I had help from other attorneys in town. John Acuff, who just passed away recently from Sparta, he sent me paying work. Dean Moore, rest his soul, he cultivated a reputation of being just profoundly disagreeable, uh, shall we say. (laughs) And he could be when he wanted to be. Dean sent me paying work in my first year, and I'll never forget that. It was much appreciated. What do you think was your biggest professional career challenge? Well, it hit in the first week of November of 2010. The, The biggest things that ever hit me was my divorce and my loss when I got beat as state representative. They both happened the first week of November in 2010. Man. Yeah. Talk about yeah. a hell of a month. Yeah, it was. A, it was uh, I've had better ones. But yeah, the divorce was a long time coming. Still incredibly sad and very difficult to work past. And that just impacts your life in, in every way. I mean, it slows you down. It occupies your mind. It impacts you. Uh, the loss was not expected. Went into the early vote, according to our pollsters, with a 10-point lead. There were a lot of undecideds, which worried me. There was a massive campaign organized by the National Republican Party that they deployed in Tennessee. They went after 12 of us. They were after the moderate McWhorter Democrats in the districts that, after Obama got elected, started leaning Republican. And they got 10 of us. They knocked 10 of us out that night with the the identical campaign across the board. So, yeah, so the first week of November, I'm divorced and I'm beat. And it was a surprise. And so I had to get oriented 
oriented and figure out what I was going to do, I jumped in my truck and I drove to Colorado and I, I camped along the Continental Divide in the snow by myself for uh, about two weeks. I did meet up with some friends in Denver at one point. I came down once and switched campsites because I wanted a hot meal that I hadn't cooked. Yeah. But it helped me get the drive out and the drive back and, and just having time to think and plan things through really helped. And it was a challenge, but Ah, you know, they can't eat you. So, uh, you know, you dust yourself off and you keep moving. You just got to figure out at that point, it was figuring out which direction to go. When you were in the state legislature, there wasn't a supermajority, right? No, the exact opposite. We were extremely tied in numbers. Okay. When I started, there was a three-vote Democratic majority. I was only in for two terms, um, and they're two-year terms. So four years I'm in the legislature. When I started, it was a three-vote Democratic majority. The next year, it was a one-vote Republican majority. But you could make things happen by working with the other side. There was a group of us that came in. A lot of them are senators now. And we just, we all got along. Our leadership tried to pull us apart, but we didn't let them. There were a lot of things that we wanted to work together on, some moderate changes. Most of them didn't get any press at all. The thing that I am proudest of that I achieved in the legislature got no press, and that was getting the mental health involuntary commitments connected with the online gun database. Well, it's been federal law since 68 that if you're involuntarily committed, you're not supposed to be able to go buy a gun. That guy that shot up Virginia Tech in 2007 had been committed, shouldn't have been able to buy a gun, bought all kinds of guns, killed a bunch of people. It's an easy fix. And I'm I'm a gun guy. That's the thing. I mean, I, I had an A-plus rating from the NRA. I like my firearms. And the NRA was all for this. My Republican friend once the NRA was for it, we're all for it. But the mental health advocates were concerned. They were my biggest opposition on that one. And we found a way around it. We got it. And we got their concerns addressed. And because you had to work on the other side of the aisle, it made everything a little bit more thoughtful. You had to take a lot more time to craft how you were going to draw up this bill, what the law was going to say. And you had to spend a lot more time making sure that it was actually going to pass because you didn't have a supermajority. You had a three-vote advantage. Did you have to work harder? Well, everyone tends to think of Democrats and Republicans as some unified group. And when I was down there, that wasn't the case. You had some real fractures between urban Democrats and rural Democrats Mm -hmm. because we come from a very conservative area. The mailer that went out accused me of all this left-wing liberal stuff. Costa, like I said, I had an A-plus rating from the NRA. I had a 100% right-to-life voting mm-hmm. record. The Democrats here were mad at me because I was too conservative. But this district is conservative, and right. it's remained that way, and will. That's just the nature of this beast. Now, down there, the goal was to get 50 votes. Uh, Ned McWhorter had the best line ever. He said, if I can get 50 votes, I can sell the dome off the Capitol. <laughs> He's like, I just need 50 votes. And so it was making deals and figuring out how to work it and sell Selling people on your idea and selling it from their standpoint. You know, does this fit with their political needs? And is this something that they can take back to their district and be proud of? And if it wasn't, and they asked me, I'd tell them. That was the other thing is you had to develop credibility I learned this practice in law, and people make all these jokes about lawyers lying and all this stuff. I tell you, law is a business. And if you're doing business with people on a regular basis, you don't get very far lying to them. 
The best analogy I ever heard was uh, Chancellor Erwin Kilcrease in Nashville. He said practicing law was like riding a merry-go-round. You might smack somebody in the face as you come around. And, oh, it's funny. You smacked him in the face. He's going to be waiting on you when you come around the other side. There you go. And so it doesn't pay to, to hand those things out. Now, we fight all the time, uh, the lawyers, when we have to. We agree if we can. We find ways to communicate. That's the other thing. Is people are like, oh, you lawyers, you're all in together. I see you. You fight all day and you go to lunch. It's like, that's yeah, true. I said, but the analogy that works for that is, have you ever played cards or a game with your friends or your family for money? Yeah. Did you let them beat you and take your money because they're your friends and family? Shoot, no. I tried to beat the socks off of them. I said, you just understood the practice of law. Yes. Well, I want to beat the heck out of everybody that's out there. I'll take them to lunch and talk to them after it. You know, it's not a personal thing for me. It can't be. There's too many cases and too many years and too many things going on. And the lawyer I'm fighting in this case today will be my co-counsel or have a co-party in the next one. You know, it doesn't pay to be uh, vindictive or spiteful. Yeah. If you could go back to the beginning, is there anything that you would change? I would. I would be more grateful and I would be more vocal about it. I had the benefit of a lot of help along the way from a lot of people. And, and you know, I tried to be nice and appreciative and thank you. And as things have happened, I try to remember everybody that's helped me along the way. But now that I'm at this stage of my career, I'm like, oh, geez, I should have thanked him or I, I should have thanked her. And what really happens is you, you open up the paper and somebody's passed away. And it's this person that you always meant to call up and take to lunch and say, hey, how you doing? Well, you know, tell me another story. Where are we going? Let me tell you what's going on. And you just get so busy and lie. Life happens and everything's going on. I just, yeah, if I was going to change anything, I would have been more grateful along the way. Very good. You've served as a judge, a lawyer, a state representative. You have more legal specialist certifications than any other Tennessee attorney. What do you see as your greatest accomplishment thus far? And how do you strategize for what comes next? Well, the greatest achievement that I have is that is my daughter, Catherine. I'm very proud of her. She's in college at MTSU. She's doing well. The divorce was hard on her, uh, and I was the very best dad that I could be. I wasn't perfect. I don't know anybody that is, but I did all that I could. I tried to be there as much as possible. Can I ask you what comes next for America? Because you have such a unique position being that you've held so many different responsibilities in our legal system, in our political system. You lived through a massive pivot in political parties. And you said yourself, you're a conservative politician. You know, I mean, granted, you're probably more moderate, but so is 95% of the country, right? So what do you think comes next in these times? We have allowed ourselves to indulge our worst fears and prejudices of about the other side. And there's a multi-billion dollar industry out there on both sides of the partisan divide in this country mm -hmm. that's feeding it. And when you add in social media and the way they target and, and reinforce your views and your echo chamber by giving you more of what you've looked at, which is a good business model for them, and it's a great business model for Fox or MSNBC or CNN, pick your poison. And it really is if you just get one source of news and you start listening. I have seen people who were supporters of mine go complete, I mean, call me a traitor because I'm a Democrat still. And it's like, 
No, not really. Yeah, what's the matter with you? I've seen people equate the Democratic Party with baby killing and communism. I've seen people equate the Republican Party with fascism and the worst of racism. And this has become a widespread feeling and assumption that people have about this. And it's just not true. Yeah, there's some extremes in both parties. Well, so what? There are some extreme views in the world. Sure. There's a lot of middle views in the world. We shouldn't fear views. But when we take something that is the size of a kidney bean and turn it into a mountain and equate that party or that group of people with this one misrepresented thing, that's the other thing about politics is people make these political figures two-dimensional. They're like cartoon characters. And they're not. They're people. They've got their own families and they've got their own lives and they've got their own views and stuff. And now I'll say this, the only one that I do think comes close to the truth and really is a two-dimensional human being is Ted Cruz. I was in law school with him. Oh, wow. And he was a prat then, and he's a prat now. I love <laughs> and that. And he's as shallow as he seems. So anyway, it's uh, not that I have strong feelings on that topic, but, but I can speak to that. But every other political actor that I've ever known or worked with had their own backstory. You know, they had their own humanity. Yeah, they're human beings. And and we've demonized each other. And I fall prey to it sometimes, particularly when, you know, when you keep getting attacked. And when, when the previous president was in there every day, I'm looking at something that's attacking something reasonable, something sensible in my, in my view. And people are following him who, if the other side was proposing the same policy, they would be raving, foaming at the mouth, angry about it. They're just following their team. And if we don't get away from that as a country, we are really opening ourselves up to being sold a bill of goods that's not good for us. Yeah. As a Harvard Law graduate, now for anyone listening, only 3% of applicants get into Harvard Law School. What did receiving an Ivy League education mean to you? And what's your advice for students and parents who are seeking admission to such a selective institution? Because I feel like your worldview and your view of the law and politics must have some significance for the the fact that you went to Harvard and was and were around people like Ted Cruz and you were able to see them for who they are. I mean, I'm just curious to hear that. Personally, the biggest thing that it gave me was was confidence. Mm-hmm. Having gotten through there, I can confidently state that I feel that my educational credentials are as good as anyone's. Now, there are people that know their field infinitely better than I'll ever know anything in that field. But no one has supreme, superior credentials to my own. That gives me some confidence, right? Doesn't mean I'm better than anybody, but it gives me confidence. I don't hold having that credential in awe. And that helps in many ways because uh, it gives me confidence in dealing with other people. It gives me confidence with tackling tough situations. And when it's time to step up, whether it was down at the legislature, we had a a big measure we had to do, or here with a big case with a client that really needs something against lawyers that we're supposed to 
fear, well, okay, I respect them, but uh, fear doesn't enter into it. But it's, they didn't go it's confidence. To <laughs> well, yeah. And now I can tell you, though, this Harvard guy has had his bell rung by National School of Law graduates, UT graduates, maybe a Vanderbilt graduate. I'm not sure. I don't think that's that's happened yeah. yet, but it will because that's the nature of the beast. Our cases uh, are decided on things, sadly, like the facts and the law rather than, you know, the, the, the great lawyering that we do for yeah. them. So I'm, I'm kidding, of course, but it's helped in that way. As far as bringing a perspective here, I hope that I've been able to share some of the view from the outside world coming in because we are a bit of a parochial community. We yeah. tend to view ourselves as part of a state and not much else. Now, for somebody that wants to get in it, then you really need to do three things. Number one is dream big. This was something my family instilled in me. Aim for the moon even if you don't hit nothing but the wood pile. Dream big. But that ain't enough. Anybody can dream big. And you could spend your life sitting on the bank fishing and dreaming big and never doing a doggone thing. So the next thing you have to do is plan ruthlessly. And by that, I mean you have to take your cherished assumptions and attack them the way other people, other institutions, other parties, other whatever are going to attack them. How can I get from where I am to where I want to be? What do I need to do and how do I get there? And start making it happen. One thing about a plan. It's a plan that's not written down as a dream. So once you get through dreaming, start planning. Write it down. Have it down where you want it to go. Adjust it. Change it. Do what you need to do, but write it down or it's not going to happen. And then third, work relentlessly. This is what you want. Go for it. Do it. Make it your focus. Go and do it. And you can get there. Uh, I was fortunate. I went to school at a time where UT gave me a, an academic scholarship. So I had the freedom to study. I worked some. I actually worked quite a bit. I attended bar. And, nice. Uh, yeah, I know, right? And uh, I did some lawn work for some uh, folks, but I didn't have to, but I did. Also, I played rugby. And the Rugby Vols just won the national championship. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so we're excited for our Vols, um, the number one in the nation. But I took it a class at a time, and my GPA was really good because I started as a freshman. I didn't even know about Harvard Law other than I'd, re- I'd seen the paper chase as a kid. It's a, it's pro- it's out of vogue now, but it was on TV when I was a child. But I f- there was a book, and it's called 1L by Scott Turow. He also wrote Presumed Innocent. Harrison Ford did a movie in the 80s about it. But 1L is about his first year at Harvard Law School. And it was about how badass it was and how hard it was and how only the best survived. And I said, well, by George, that's where I want to go. And so I knew I had to do real good at college, and I did. I received a very favorable percentile on my LSAT, and I got in. I used to joke and say that, you know, Harvard wants one of everything, and uh, my particular thing was a neck of color uh, scholarship. (laughs) 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 Instead of just they needed a redneck. So there were several of us from the South. We were talking the other day about how Harvard tried to have one of everything. Yeah. I mean, there were road scholars in my class. There were medical doctors. There was a sheep rancher. There was a paramedic from North Dallas. There was uh, a New York Times reporter. There were former congressional interns. There were a lot of, you know, random college kids like myself because that's all I'd done. So if you want to go, 
aim high. But uh, part of that ruthless planning needs to be your backup. Yeah. You know, it's it's great to dream. Go for it. But where are we going to go if we don't land where we're hoping for? Who inspired you to dream big and reach these very, very ambitious goals? Well, I, I reference my family. It's really my father. He's passed away now. He died at the age of 93 a few years ago. Dad was a combat veteran of World War II in Korea. And he he was a teacher here. He taught, I guess, two generations of kids here because he taught for over 40 years wow. in the school system. The last 20 years, he was coaching at the junior high. So every young boy that came through Cookville Junior High from like 71 to 90 had my dad at some point. And uh, he was tough, but he was fair. And he was always joking and laughing. But he carried the war with him in ways that people outside the family didn't see. Mm-hmm. He would wake up at night yelling and things like that. He'd be mad that I was telling that one on him. But um, seeing him intuitively knowing, feeling what he had been through. Sure. I shouldn't say knowing. I still don't know what he went through. But feeling it. And seeing how he dealt with it and how he, every day, he confronted adversity and he worked through it and did great, really helped. And the inspiration of what those people in that generation went through, Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the world was on the brink of going under and being fascist. And then we could be German or Japanese slaves today. People think that's hyperbole. It's not. Right. That was 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 there. That's what was happening. And that's what his generation stopped. And to think that they did all that and all I got to do is go to school and try to make things together and make life better for my family um, and my community, it was a responsibility. But I, I shared it before what he said, aim for the moon, even if you don't hit nothing but the wood pile. And apparently my grandfather, who was, uh, I never met, he passed away before I was born. He was a veteran of World War One. He lost his lung in a German gas attack. That was his line, aim for the moon, wow. even if you don't hit nothing but the wood pile. That's at once inspiring and very freeing. It's like, yeah, go for it. And if you mess up, if you don't get there, well, we don't care. You know, we'll, you come home and we'll be here. It, it worked for me. And it's share that with anybody. It's like, go for it. You know, you, if you don't get up and take a swing, then you're never going to know. And if it doesn't pan out, well, to hell with it. You know, you, you, at least you tried. Absolutely. Yeah. Henry, where do you see yourself in 10 years, man? I really like where I'm at. I, I like where my practice has developed. I have a stable of types of cases now. I do business business disputes. I do complex family law. I do estate litigation and then a a smattering of other things. I do planning for people and things as well. But having the challenge of helping people in some of their worst situations, their business has fallen apart, their marriage has fallen apart, their family member has passed away. It's a new generation. What are we going to do? And, and, you know, there, there are people who try to bully other people. And I mashed the bully's nose back in fourth grade and And I'm still doing it. You know, somebody's got to. And uh, if they can't, then I'm here. So I hope I'm still doing this in 10 years uh, and 20 years and however long it is. Yeah, I love that. So we always like to end the show on a high note. Who is someone that makes you better when you're together? That's my fiance, uh, Randy Strong. She is beautiful and wonderful. She has talents and and abilities and skills with things that I don't even understand. Uh, The ability to make something beautiful, a a room, a house, an event space, 
to me, it's like a Disney princess. It's like the hand gets waved and, you know, bluebirds are singing and flowers are growing and things like this are going on. She's she's done that with my life. She has come in and has made things blossom and bloom where before they were just sitting there. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Better Together with Costa Yepafonso. If you enjoyed listening and you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Leave us a review, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. Better Together with Costa Yepafonsiv is a Costa Yepafonsiv production. Writing and production by Morgan Franklin. Want to find out more about Costa? Visit us at costayepafonsiv.com. We're better together. <laughs>